grab your Bibles and turn over to Genesis chapter 20. All right, so Genesis chapter 20. We are continuing on in our journey throughout the book of Genesis. And we come again to another head-scratching story uh, where it just kind of leaves you uh, wondering what is going through Abraham's mind as he does something uh, yet again uh, that's not very smart. And uh, so let's uh, learn from his, his life and, uh, and from the Word of God. So let's stand once you get that. Genesis chapter 20. We're going to look at the sheer mercy and grace of our God in fallen and feeble people. Starting there in verse 1. Now Abraham moved from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abram said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I've kept you from sinning against me. This is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such a great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to, be, or to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from the father's house, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned his wife, Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his slave girls, and so that they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. All right. Round two, okay? Round two with our brother here, Abraham. And as we look at this story, 
we are going to see once again that nothing and no one can mess up the promises that God has made, especially those that he has made the promises to. All right, so nobody can mess up God's covenant promise, not even the people he made those promises to. And this morning, we're going to have a very simple outline, two points. The first one, the covenant promise threatened, and the second point, the covenant promise preserved. All right, so the covenant promise threatened, and then secondly, the covenant promise preserved. So let's dive into the first one, the covenant promised threatened. Moments ago, we read about this story where once again, Abraham does something where he acted more like a non-Christian than a Christian, if we can use those terms. This head-scratching story is eerily familiar because it has happened before. Once again, back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham did this very exact thing passing off his wife as his sister in fear. What Abraham does, yet again, is that he is living out of fear and not living out of faith. See, this man of faith who was held up in the Bible so many times as a great example of faith even has his times where he falters and fails. When he is living by fear and not by faith, he is living by sight and not by faith. He's having those wishy-washy moments. Now, before we get too hard on Abraham and throw the baby out with the bathwater, I want to ask us to take an honest look at our own lives. What do I mean by this? I mean, I want us to take an honest look at our life and wonder if there are some times in which we do the very same thing. We have these very high times in life where we are walking by faith, where we are taking steps out into the unknown, trusting God. And then the very next moment, we're walking by fear. The very next moment, we are doing the things that we don't want to do. We know not to do. There are those times where we realize that we are still sinners being sanctified. There are those times that we are still struggling with the sins of our past. Whereas when we talked about in the beginning in Romans 7, sin kind of creeps its ugly face back up into our life and says, remember me? And in those weak moments, we fail and we follow in those paths of sin. Listen to what Martin Luther said of the Christian's ongoing battle with sin. He says Christians are saints and sinners simultaneously. Saints and sinners simultaneously. What Luther is getting at here is that at the same time, we are in one sense justified and forgiven of our sin only because of Christ and what he's done in our lives. And yet in another sense, in and of ourselves, we are still sinners. So for the Christian on this side of glory, we are still struggling with sin. We are still fighting a battle with sin like we read in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing. The things I want to do, I don't do. What's going on inside of me? See, though we are freed from the penalty of sin through Christ alone, in this life we are not free from the presence of sin. We struggle with sin. Many have likened it to a civil war going on inside of us, where there's this push and pull between good and evil. We want to do the things of God, 
and yet sometimes we find ourselves not. There's a war going on inside of us. And yes, as our brother prayed, Christ will win that war. And yes, by God's help through the Holy Spirit, we can beat sin. But it's still a war on this side of glory. On this life, as we walk this journey, like our brother Abraham, we are fighting a war. I wonder if anybody's been fighting a war this week. I know that in our own ways, in our own times, at our, at the, at, at our own weaknesses, we have the war that we've been fighting throughout this week. And yet here, Abraham's life was a war. His growth in godliness was a process. And even as a Christian, he messed up. Even as one who is following God and walking by faith and who the Bible holds up as the prime example of faith in many ways, he still has these low points in life where he's reverting back to the old man inside of him. And so we need to keep this framework in mind as we seek to understand what is going on in Genesis chapter 20. See, for many chapters now, we've been highlighting the importance of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember, God made a covenant, and he made a covenant with Abraham that he would give him what? A people and a land. A people more numerous than the stars in the sky, and a land, a promised land for his people to dwell in. Well, even though we know that God, with God, a, a promise made is a promise kept, from a human perspective, there are times when because of our own sinful choices, we can jeopardize the covenant. We can threaten the covenant promise. And this happens again as Abraham deceives Abimelech into thinking that Sarah is his sister and not his wife. He did the very same thing back in Genesis chapter 12. But here God intervenes in verse 3. Look again at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of this woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So the same thing happens, right? She comes into a foreign kingdom. They're afraid that something's going to happen. He says, pretend to be my sister. We realize uh, uh, earlier that this is kind of his mode of operation. He, he made this agreement years ago with his wife that whenever you come into a foreign country, you're going to pretend like you are my sister. And this happens again and again, as we see. And yet... Now we have this King Abimelech who God actually appears to, unlike the last incident with Pharaoh. And what happens next is actually very interesting. There's a conversation between God and Abimelech. And you have to understand kind of the irony here, okay? It's almost as if Abimelech is put forward as the good guy of the story in some ways. What do I mean by that? Abimelech claims that he is innocent and that he has been deceived by Abraham. Who's God's prophet? Who's God's patriarch? Abraham, right? And yet Abraham is acting more like the unbelieving pagans. So here you have a, a unbelieving pagan king who is acting more like a, a Christian than the prophet Abraham. He's saying, look, I was innocent, right? He said that he was her sister. 
So this is not a, a look at Abraham and see how great his faith is kind of story. This is not a imitate Abraham story, okay? Don't do this. All right? In fact, in verse 6, the Lord agrees with Abimelech that on this account he is innocent. Right? He says, yes, you are innocent. Because he deceived you. But lest we start thinking too highly of old King Abimelech, God throws this singer in at the verse, end of verse 6. He says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So God says here, I kept you from sinning. Think about that for a moment. This is true of Abimelech's life, and this is true of all of our lives. If it weren't for the restraining hand of God in our lives, we would be engulfed in all kinds of horrendous and heinous sins. We could do unthinkable things. The, the time in which you think that you're not capable of X, Y, and Z sin, you're right close to it. Unless the Lord holds you back. Unless the Lord holds me back. And so he's reminding King Abimelech here, look, it's not because you're so great. It's not because you're so righteous. It's not because you're so innocent and, and ethical that you didn't touch her. It's because I stopped it from happening. God wanted Abimelech to know that lest we get too high on our horses and claim the moral high ground, it's God who restrains our sin. It's a good lesson for us to understand just as much as Abimelech. But as we pause for a moment, we kind of zoom out from Genesis chapter 20 for a minute here. We see that ever since Abraham arrived on the scene of the Bible, it has been a roller coaster of a life. It's been a roller coaster of a story with high highs and very low lows. We've been talking about that, how Abraham would do things like leave his hometown, leave his home family and go out to a place where he didn't know where he was going. All he had was a promise that God said, I will be with you and this is what you're supposed to do. And then in the next moment, he pretends to Pharaoh that his wife is his sister and you know the story from last time. Great highs of trusting God and walking by faith almost immediately followed by low lows. Walking by fear or walking by sight. And if you're reading the story as a whole, having just got done with Abraham begging the Lord to spare Sodom, right? We've been looking at Sodom and Gomorrah for the last couple of weeks. It was one of the highs where he was begging for the Lord to work in Sodom, to spare Sodom. And yet, what does he turn around and do? He turns around and does the same thing in putting the promise in jeopardy. One commentator calls chapter 20 the anti-climax of the greater story. So this is not a climax of the story where things are going well. It's kind of one of those moments where you go up and then, right? A deflating moment in the story. And yet, how real this is to real life. Right? Our lives are a roller coaster at times. A lot of times, right? Maybe you're on that roller coaster right now where you just followed a great high by a low low. Just like our brother Abraham. 
It's a constant battle between good and evil and not just out there in the world, but also in here in our hearts. A battle where we must choose if we are going to walk by faith or walk by sight. And sometimes as we walk, we walk by sight and have great lows. And it is humbling, just like what happens to our brother here, Abraham. One musician put it this way. He said, my friends fell low when they were so high. It's got me running scared of myself, no lie. The highest of high times in our lives are sometimes when we fall the hardest. We need to remember that we are indeed saints and sinners at the same time. And there is a balanced perspective here. There are times when we focus on one more than the other. What do I mean by that? At times, we get prideful that we are doing the, the good uh, life and living the good life for God. We start thinking kind of like King Abimelech. Man, I'm doing pretty good, right? And God has to come and what? Humble us. We forget how God restrains sin. And yet there are some times where we think so lowly of ourselves. We, we beat ourselves up so much for our sin and so much for our failures that we forget the good news of the gospel. It's as almost if we, you know, in our service, when we do our confession of sin, followed by our assurance of, of the gospel, if we just did the confession, seeing how bad we are time and time and time again without the good news of the gospel. See, it's a balanced perspective here. And there's a balance to be found at this roller coaster of life. And in these low moments, like Abraham jeopardizing the covenant through deception and lies, they serve as a warning to us, lest we get high and mighty, that we would remain humble and reliant upon the Lord. But even when we mess up, we see that God is faithful and at work. And so we see how the covenant was jeopardized, but we also see how the covenant was promised, was preserved through the Lord. Let's look at our second point here, the covenant promise preserved. See, Abimelech listens to God's instructions, and the very next morning he sets out to return Sarah to Abraham. He tells his servants of the dream, and they are afraid. And Abraham is called to give an account. He summons for Abraham, he's kind of like, Abraham, what the heck? What's going on? What did you do to me and my kingdom? And even though caught red-handed, what does Abraham do? He doesn't own up to his mistake. He tries to justify what he did. Abraham says, well, she kind of is my sister. <laughs> Not his best moment, right? At best, it's a half-truth. At worst, it's a lie. He gives his bad reasons there in verse 11 through 13. And yet, in all of this, there is something that baffles the reader. In verses 7 and 17. Look at verse 7. Now then, God's talking to uh, Abimelech. Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. And they go down to verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed 
Abimelech. Now, at this part of the story, we have, we're, we're kind of scratching our heads. What's going on here? How is God calling him to pray for Abimelech after what Abraham did? Why does it seem like God is siding with the deceiver and not the deceived? See, earlier God said to Abimelech that he was right. He had been deceived and was innocent on one level in regards to Sarah. But now he's saying that this man who deceived him is going to pray for him. And he must pray for him. That's the only way that his kingdom is going to be kept safe and his woman, women healed. Listen to what one commentator said as he points out the irony. He says, God instructed the deceiver to pray for the deceived. God instructed the deceiver to pray for the deceived. Now what's going on here? Well, first we have to understand the role of a prophet. The role of a prophet. Listen again to another quote. This is the first use of prophet in the Bible. The role of prophet here is that of an intercessor. It's where he says he will pray for you. Abraham's duplicity apparently did not disqualify him from functioning as an interceding prophet. And so part of a prophet's job, we see prophets all throughout the scripture, part of a prophet's job is to pray on behalf of the people to God. Abraham is called to do that for Abimelech. And in one sense, it didn't matter that Abraham had sinned greatly because Abraham was still God's prophet. Abraham was still God's chosen man who had to do the job that God had called him to do. Even with all of his screw-ups, even with all of his failures, God chose to use him in that way. And he had to be used in that way. But we must be reminded that no one who works for God as a prophet or a pastor or ministry leader or whatever can claim their position on merit alone, meaning what they do as good or bad. All of God's chosen leaders have their faults and their failures and their sin. There is only one perfect leader of the church, and that is who? Jesus. There is one perfect leader. That means every other leader in the church is going to be fallen is going to have failures, is going to have those low points. And yet, God chooses to work through feeble and frail and imperfect people like you and me. Abraham's life shows this. So as important and necessary as his role is, he clearly shows that he didn't earn it and that he didn't deserve it. It was God's sheer grace and God's mercy that he chose to use him in that moment. He said, you're my prophet. Your job is to pray for Abimelech. I have chosen you, not because of anything special inside of you. What you just did shows that. And yet it's my mercy and my grace alone is how I choose to use you. God's grace to preserve the covenant promise that he made to Abraham years ago is shown here. But lest we think that Abraham got off scotch-free again for doing this, we need to look at the larger story in Genesis chapter 26. Turn over there real quick. Genesis 26. We know that God is a God of justice. We know that he cares 
and that he will ultimately do what is right. No one ever gets off scotch-free. But we're going to see here something very sad as it relates to his son. Look at verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Same place. All right? Where this story is taking place. When the men of this place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Hmm. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, he's back, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have laid with your wife, and you would have brought upon us guilt. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man's or his wife shall surely be put to death. What is this a story of? This is a story of like father, like son. Right? And how many lessons are packed into this one little moment? See, for us as parents, we need to know that our kids are watching our lives. See, they catch on to the good things, thank God, and they catch on to the bad things, okay? You, you've heard before maybe the saying that the best things in life are, are caught and not taught, meaning our kids are always watching, right? They're always watching what mom and dad are doing. And they end up, a lot of times, reproducing the things that they've seen. So what was Abraham's uh, repercussion here uh, from his sin? His son did the very same thing. He figured, Dad did it, so I can do it, right? That's how Dad did things, though. That's how I do things. How sad it is. Be careful of the example that you put before your kids. They are watching your life, and they are going to follow your example. Abraham learned this the hard way. So here in Genesis chapter 20, as a summary, we have God working through an unbelieving yet reverent king who acts more noble than his own prophet. And yet, he works to preserve the promise that he made to Abraham and to Sarah so many years ago. He's about to give him part of that promise. Next week we'll look at that with the birth of Isaac. That promise that was given years and years and years ago. Nothing could thwart that promise because God was the one who made that promise. And for us, this should be amazing. We should be in awe of the grace and mercy that God showed Abraham and the grace and the mercy that God shows us how he continues to restrain the evil inside of us. He continues to help us to fight the war that we have to fight each morning when we wake up. Once again, God is the hero of his own story. The hero here is not Abraham. How important is that for us to point out? Abraham is not the hero. Abimelech is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of the story. 
time and time again. When you think about it, it's amazing that God chooses to work through any of us to accomplish his will. When we look at our brother Abraham and take a look at our own lives, we should be amazed at how patient God is, how loving God is, how merciful God is that he should choose to work through people like you and me. And no one knows yourself better than you, right? I'm looking at my own life, thinking about my own faults and my own failures. And I'm like, thank God he chooses to work through me. But lest we be tempted to put too much of an emphasis on ourselves, on that human element of the equation, Genesis 20 is a great reminder to us that no one is above their own sin. But also that no one can mess up God's promises. Not even the people that he made the promises to. See, God is the protector of his own promises. He is the guarantor of his own word. And you know what the greatest proof of that is? The greatest proof that he is going to carry out his promises is Jesus. What do I mean by that? In Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, what we are about to celebrate here at the Lord's Supper, it is a promise to us. It's to show us that God keeps his word. He is the protector of the covenant. If it weren't for that, there would be no covenant. It would be broken and done and we would be damned to hell. And yet God is the protector of his own promises. I'll close with this verse from 2 Corinthians. For all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. How do we know that God is going to keep his promise? We look at Jesus. And we never stop looking at Jesus. Like we've talked about in this season of our church plant, we keep looking up. We keep our eyes fixed on him. That's the only way that we can move forward. The only way that his church will move forward. The only way that we will reach glory is through him. The only way that we'll win that fight. And we'll be able to wake up tomorrow and to fight another day. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the protector of your promises. Father, there is none like you. God, we realize that there are so many times that we fail, so many times that just like our brother Abraham, we fall even after great highs of, of our life with you. And so, Father, wherever we are this morning, I pray that you would help us to uh, do a few things. I pray that you would help us to take an honest look at ourselves. Maybe we are prideful about where we've been and what we've been doing, and we need to be humbled. Maybe we are so down in the dumps and so focused on our sin that we need to once again focus on the goodness of you, God, in the gospel. Lord, we need to be reminded that you use broken and feeble and fallen people just like Abraham. God, we thank you that you continue to keep your word. There is never a time where you don't keep your promises. And so we pray that you would just help us to meditate on that as we come to your table. 
where this is a, a reminder to us. It's a physical picture, visible, of your promises to us. God, we love you. We thank you that you are continuing to work in our lives. We pray that you would keep our eyes on you as we fight the good fight, as we run the race that's set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name.